Let me pray for us. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful who have gathered out of love for you. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Years ago, when Sydney was uh, in preschool, uh, we had enrolled her at a local Montessori school near our home. And uh, she had a wonderful teacher named Ms. Cruz. And we were surprised one day when she came home and started saying the word consequences. Because, evidently, that's a lesson that school children need to learn about behavior and consequences, yeah. right? <laughs> and so Sydney was learning that lesson very well, I might add. All, Sydney and all her classmates were learning from Miss Cruz that their behavior had consequences, sometimes good consequences, sometimes not so good consequences. And I think what we often think about when we think about consequences, uh, we think about it in a parental or legal uh, terms, right? If you break the rules, then you will be punished, right? And, you know, actually, a lot of faith traditions, our Christian faith traditions, teach us that. You may have grown up in a church where there was lots of talk about consequences. When it comes to faith, our early understandings of God leave us believing that God dishes out consequences. This, of course, leads to images of God as a judge, as a lightning bolt thrower, <laughs> God as a killjoy, God as a mean parent. God as the finger-wagging wagger-in-chief, right? But despite this negative spin, um, consequences are only effects or results. It really is a pretty neutral word. Consequences are those things that are caused by certain actions or lack thereof. They might be bad, they might be good. This is one of the simplest philosophical principles learned by school children. Causation. But consequences aren't necessarily punishment. They are the outcome of actions and dependent on relations between things. In other words, consequences are about connections. And our readings today remind us that we are, in fact, connected. Bad choices lead to death, maybe little deaths, maybe big deaths. Good choices lead to life. Loving and forgiving one's neighbor results in honorable relationships and unity. And if we hold one another responsible and accountable and practice forgiveness, then a community can actually embody that and embody justice and mercy and peace. As the first lesson says, coming to the peace table and being a peacemaker is hard, hard work. It doesn't come easily. We do have to work at this. So, 
consequences arise from the interconnectedness of community. Pull one thread of the web and the whole thing moves. I learned this when I uh, participated for a while in um, a, a, an alcoholics program, uh, I can't, it, adult children of alcoholics. And uh, what I found out was that in a, in, a, in a family where somebody is sick with alcoholism, if one person in the family will stop and go the other way, you know, will stop and say, no, no more, no more, then that begins a whole process where everybody participates and can participate. Now, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, so, but the, the, I think the point I'm trying to make is that we have a chance to make choices that result in actions that help the whole web turn in a positive way. So um, it was a good lesson for Sydney. And it's a good lesson for us today, isn't it? Last week we explored Jesus' teaching about deeper physics of handling human conflict in healthy and life-giving ways. Jesus has just counseled his disciples to confront church conflict directly and wisely, knowing that the word church didn't exist in Jesus' time, that that's a word put in there by Matthew. But in effect, creating constructive context for apology, for forgiveness, for reconciliation. And Peter asks a follow-up question that would occur to any of us. Okay, okay, I'll do this. I'll do this forgiveness thing, but uh, how many times? How much do I have to put in on this? Especially if somebody keeps sinning against me. How often should I forgive? Seven times? Well, I don't know the last time you forgave somebody seven times in a row. But, I mean, obviously Simon Peter's all about seven times. But this only makes Jesus' answer all the more mind-bending. Because he says, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Here again, we get this glimpse of a deep physics of which Jesus so frequently points. There's a resonance, a correlation between the mercy we give and the mercy we receive. So earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear Jesus teach a prayer that includes the words, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We also hear a little bit later then in Matthew, Jesus say to the disciples and to his followers, do not judge so that you may not be judged. It is as if, when we're merciful and forgiving, or by contrast, when we're stingy or vengeful, we create a kind of microclimate around ourselves and in our communities and in our families. If it's full of judgment, we'll experience judgment. Forgiveness, it turns out, 
is an environmental issue. The world we make is the world we inhabit. Interestingly, as Diana Butler Bass explains, that word debt, an economic and legal term, and sin, a moral and theological term, are the exact same word in Matthew's text. The exact same word. The word for debt is that same slippery ter term that means both economic debt and moral transgression. In Matthew's gospel, it is difficult to separate the two. Matthew's gospel wants to teach us that the economy that we produce can create sin or alleviate sin for all of us. In fact, we live in a culture that is driven by debt, one way or the other. And so we have to learn how to deal with that in an economic way and a moral way. It's almost as if Jesus means for us to be confused or upset by this teaching. You know? I mean, we learned when we studied the parables of Jesus is that Jesus is not about giving us easy answers. Jesus is about making us leave and think about it and wonder what in the world was he thinking when he taught this. So it may sound radical to us, but Jesus really wasn't far from the law of his own people and his own scriptures when he teaches us that we are to give, forgive 77 times. You see, the central hope of the Jewish tradition is a vision of debt -free, a debt-free world, an economic system based solely on God's provision and generosity, a moral response of gratitude and humility on the part of the people. If you read the Hebrew scriptures, you will see this talked about again and again and again. And regular, regular rituals of debt abolition and freedom from contractual obligation. So, you know, I'm thinking about in the UCC, we've got this program where a church can come together and get other churches together and can buy medical debt. And so when you buy medical debt because it's paid off, all the interest, you don't have to pay all the interest because you have paid off this medical debt. So churches collect money, they pay out, they find, uh, that with the help of a, an organization that is about paying off medical debts and with our denomination, find a way to find the people who most need their medical debt met. This is the vision of the Jewish tradition. And so it's our vision too. So, this was to be for Israel the economic and moral rhythm of life. The economic and moral rhythm to seek to alleviate debts so people can be free to make the right choices for themselves. And it's linked together in a single social fabric practiced through weekly Sabbath, Sabbath years, and the Jubilee. And you know what happens in the Sabbath years? Debt is forgiven. And in the Jubilee, people get their land back that was taken from them. They get restored. That's an amazing thing. So 
If God forgives us, then we who are created in the image and likeness of God are to forgive one another. So that together we may create a realm and an atmosphere of mercy, a taste of what Jesus calls the realm of heaven. And this doesn't mean that we abandon accountability, because forgiveness can be distorted into death-dealing dynamics. And that's not what we're talking about here. If an abused person is pushed to forgive, but is forced to remain in an ongoing abusive situation, that's not the process. That's not the healthy process that God intends. God intends that we uncover the truth, and that that truth be told. We work toward healing, and work toward healing and only then can you make the decision of whether there will be reconciliation or whether it is healthier not to reconcile. So the goal is forgiveness because by not forgiving, who are you hurting the most? We are hurting ourselves the most. So we work toward that and then we see if there's a path to reconciliation or not. This is also known in a 12-step program, is that you come to a step where you go and you seek uh, forgiveness from the people you have harmed because of your illness. And you do that only if that won't harm them further. And they may reject your, your, your confession and your request for forgiveness. And that you live with, you live with, right? So this is what happens in all this process. And it's hard, and it's hard work, and churches seem to have the hardest time with it. I can't believe how often people in the church are at fisticuffs about things and can't seem to forgive each other. It's an amazing thing. Well, the challenge for us today is that there's a complex interplay between justice and forgiveness. And it's reflected not only at a macro level. Remember in South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? They went through that process. They had people come and tell their stories, speak the truth. And then they worked toward healing. And eventually, they were able to do some reconcilia reconciliation. But that's also true in our in interpersonal relationships, not just the macro level, but interpersonal relationships, is that that's the step-by-step -step process that we are called to take. And for those of us who take the name Christian, this process leads us to a place of peace. A place of peace, shalom. You know that word, it means so much more than peace. It means a wholeness of life, a fullness of life in which we can be at peace, okay? If then, consequences. And the good news is that actions can be changed, and those changes will have their own consequences and alter the future. And that's the point of Jesus' teachings. We can change. We have agency. We aren't victims of either pa our past deeds or a capricious God. We can turn from our sins against each other. We can embrace the reality that we can love our neighbor, even our neighbor who violates our shared covenants. And we can lose healing in our lives, in our church, and in the world. This is the path of peace. And it's the peace we encounter when we come to this table. 
It is one of the core elements of Holy Communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is that Jesus, the risen Christ, meets us in this meal and offers us peace through forgiveness, through love, through hospitality. Jesus doesn't uh, outline uh, any limitations on this. We've come to this table to encounter peace. My UCC colleague, Reverend Vince Amlin, a pastor at Bethany UCC in Chicago, shared a story about forgiveness in his devotional this week, and I knew when I read it, I had to tell it to you. In 793, Vikings raided the monastery at Lindisfarne in England, also known as Holy Island. It was the most sacred site in the kingdom of let me, Northumbria. It was desecrated. Its altars were dug up, its valuables stolen, its inhabitants were killed or led away in chains. In 1993, on the 1200th anniversary of the attack, a delegation of two arrived from Norway at St. Mary's Church on Lindisfarne, bearing gifts. They brought a bust of St. Olaf, the, their country's patron saint, and a letter asking for reconciliation. A sign at the front of the sanctuary tells how the community welcomed the visitors, worshiped with them, and shared in the Eucharist. It concludes, so although we had not previously realized that we were still at war with Norway, peace was declared. So you see, Jesus doesn't have an outline, a statute of limitations on this, on our offenses. Nor, thankfully, any expiration date on God's forgiveness. Jesus only says that the moment we remember we've hurt a sibling, we should stop whatever we're doing and seek to be reconciled. Jesus wants us to seek and offer forgiveness, whether it's been 1,200 years or 12 minutes, whether we realize the war is still raging or believe the peace was declared generations ago. It's never too late to repent of the pain we've caused, or forgive the one who has caused us pain. And it's never been so long that we should neglect the work of repair. In the end, then, Peter's question misses the point, as Peter usually does. God bless you. Forgiveness can't be quantified. Counting, after all, is an Avengers game. Instead, Jesus calls each of us to leave the quantities behind and embrace forgiveness as a quality of the mind and of the heart. Nothing about this is easy. Jesus wants us to go on the way with him to develop a skill set for living and to forgive 70 times 7. 
Well, then forgiveness won't be something we do. It will be a part of who we are, givers and receivers of mercy, children of God, living by the grace of God, and thus living in tune with the deep physics of God's creation, the love beyond measure at the heart of all things on earth as it is in heaven. If then are the consequences, death-dealing or life-giving. A good lesson for school children and for us. So today you are invited to the table of God's grace that includes hospitality and love and peace. So come and give thanks to God. Amen.